Romans chapter 8. I want to read verses 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, we're in a kind of mini-series in which we're focusing on some phrases from verses 28, 29, and 30. And just by way of review, I want to point out those phrases to you. We're looking at God's good plan, and we're seeing that God's good plan is uh, broken down in five angles here in these three verses. First of all, our knowledge of God's plan, and we know. This is a plan in contrast to the many things in life that we don't know, like exactly what to pray for, as we read in a few verses earlier. There is something that we do know, and that is that God is working all things here for good. That's our knowledge of God's plan. And then we see the recipients of God's plan. Who is it? It's those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. Those are the recipients of God's plan. And then the scope of God's plan. What does God's plan include? Does it include only the things that we see as good, only the things in life that we like and that are pleasant to us? No, God's love is so powerful that it encompasses everything, like every part of life, not just the good things or the things that we think are good, but God's love is so powerful that He could transform even your darkest nights to become what will be His glory and your good. That's the scope of God's plan. It encompasses everything. Fourth, we see not only the scope of God's plan, but the outcome of God's plan. Where is all this going? This is the glory that Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is the glory, as we've been reminding ourselves, for which the entire creation is groaning. It's the glory for which we ourselves groan. It's the glory for which this Holy Spirit prays would be accomplished in our lives. It is the glory of you and me as believers being ultimately conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the outcome of God's plan. And then fifth, we have the certainty of God's plan. We see this in, in verse 30, in which verses 29 and 30, beginning with this word for, and then speaking of this unbreakable chain that extends into eternity past and continues into eternity future, the certainty of God's plan. Now, if you didn't know anything about tree roots, which of course you all do, but if you, suppose you didn't, and you're to see a tree it might look as if a tree were doing some sort of weird balancing act, right? You've got these unwieldy branches, and all the weight is coming down on the trunk of the tree. But as soon as you realize that beneath that trunk is this vast network of roots that are piercing through layers of soil and rocks, it makes total sense that this tree is stable. I mean, if you didn't know that the roots existed, you might think, man, that thing is going down with the next gust of wind. 
But as soon as you realize that this tree is rooted into the ground, you realize that it can be there for sometimes hundreds of years. In a similar way, if we didn't know anything about God's eternal plan for us, His deeply rooted plan for us, we might think that the circumstances we find ourselves in would be enough to blow us over, to knock us down, to ruin us, that every little gust of doubt or every little storm of uncertainty or trial would completely demolish us or, in fact, make us feel as if we have been severed from the love of God rather than being joined to the love of God. And that's exactly why Paul uses the word for in verse 29, because the word for, if you look at it in your Bibles, the word for signals the reason that we know that all things work together for good. So how can we have such confidence? I mean, how can we, like Paul says, we know that all things work together for good. How can we have such confidence that every single circumstance in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ is actually part of an enormous tapestry that God is weaving for your good and His glory? How do you even know that? Here's how you know it. It's because this plan was God's plan all along. These things did not come up all of a sudden. They're rooted in eternity past. That's why we have Romans 8, 29, and 30 in our Bibles. It's to root our hearts and minds in the certainty of God's plan. You see, there would be no comfort in Romans 8.28 if there were no truth in Romans 8.29 and 30. Our certainty in Romans 8.28 is rooted in 8.29 and 30. Now, speaking of roots, parts of them lie above the ground, right? Right? And then other parts of the roots quickly plunge beneath the soil, beyond our sight. And the same is true with some of God's ways. Some of God's ways we can easily understand, right? But sometimes God's ways quickly plunge beneath the surface of our comprehension so that we're not able to understand how all this fits together beneath the surface. And the same is true with some of the doctrines that we are introduced to here in Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. We see words like foreknowledge and predestined and called. And some of these are parts of roots. We can see them on the surface, and yet very quickly they plunge right beneath the soil of our comprehension. And because we are going to be dealing with some of these difficult teachings today. Maybe you, some of you are wondering, Pastor Jonathan, what's your aim in preaching on these verses? Am I just going to skip over them? This is part of the series that we're on through Romans 8, and my aim in preaching these verses is the aim that I've had in preaching on any other verse, and that is to expose your hearts and minds to the truth of Scripture so that we could change. That's the agenda, so that we could hear God's voice. And if you're here this morning and some of these things may be troubling to you or maybe some of these things are unfamiliar to you, let me just encourage you that this is the voice of God speaking in His Word. Don't listen to just my voice. Listen to the voice of God speaking in His Word. So here's a map of where we're going. I just want to give you an overview of how we're going to break this down, God's certain plan. We're going to, first of all, ask the question, what mistakes must we avoid? Because at a topic like this, there's some 
things we need to be careful of in our own thinking, what mistakes we must avoid. And because we must first understand this, we need to ask the question, well, what does this even mean? And then finally, what does this mean for us? What mistakes must we avoid in this teaching in Romans 8, 29, and 30? What does this mean? And then what does this mean for us? Now, first of all, what mistakes must we avoid? If you look at a a two-dimensional flattened map of the world, you know what I'm talking about, this two-dimensional flat map of the world, and you think about Greenland on that map, have you ever noticed that Greenland looks massive? But if you look at it on a globe, Greenland's not that big. If, if you look at it on this flattened two-dimensional map, it looks like Greenland is like five times larger than the United States of America. But in fact, Greenland is only like a fifth of the size of America. And here's why. It's because the map makers, when putting this, trying to take a globe and reduce it to a two-dimensional surface, have to distort something to make it flat. Now, here's what happens when we try to take God's ways, which are like three-dimensional, like they defy our two-dimensional minds, and when we try to take God's ways and flatten them onto our two-dimensional minds, something often gets distorted. So here's the first danger that we must avoid, the first mistake we must avoid. We must allow God's Word to say what it says even when it does not neatly fit our two-dimensional system of thinking. We must God allow God's Word to say exactly what it says, even if it doesn't fit our way of thinking. Why? God's ways are infinitely above our ways, and so there's some things about God that we're not going to be able to wrap our minds around. But some will say, hi, I don't like that. I like to be able to know that I've got everything figured out. But doesn't it make sense to you that God, if He really is God, there are going to be some things about Him that completely explode the categories of your thought? Back in my college years, I've always tried to be an eager learner, and I was in the bookstore one day, and this bright red book grabbed my attention. I picked it up, and I looked at it, and the title was Relativity, and the author was Albert Einstein. And I looked at that book, and I was like, why not? So I bought it, and I started reading it. And you know what didn't happen? I didn't pick up the book and start flipping through like, Duh. Oh, knew that. Flipped through. Obviously. No, that's not, what I, that's not what I encountered when I started flipping through this book on relativity. relativity. I quickly realized that the mind of Einstein was far greater than the mind of Threlfall. That's what I discovered. <laughs> I discovered that, that there were some things about my thought that not only could I not understand, but I didn't even get what he was saying, even though the preface said, this book will be understandable by anybody really that reads it. I mean, he said at the very beginning, I've tried to make this as simple as I possibly can. Now, now here's where I'm going with this. If that is true of, of the mind of a human Einstein, how much greater is that true of God? I mean, wouldn't you expect in this book that God has given us to encounter some things that you just say, hey, that totally blows the categories of my thought. I completely, I believe it, 
But, but I cannot say that I could wrap my mind around it. I mean, we're talking about God, the creator of atoms, the creator of constellations and galaxies, the creator of everything. Do we think that we are going to be able to wrap our mind around His ways? No, we've got to let the glow be 3D and not try to flatten it onto our two-dimensional way of thinking. We cannot flatten the globe of God's ways. Be willing to let God be God and recognize that there are going to be some things about Him that will completely blow our minds. Now, maybe you feel, if this is the case, that someone might say, well, your God is irrational or illogical, or maybe your God isn't fair. I want us to be careful of something. God does not need our defense. God is not insecure about who He is. We need to let God be God, and we need to busy ourselves more with proclaiming Him than protecting Him. We need to busy ourselves more with declaring His ways rather than trying to defend His ways. Let God be God. We need to recognize that there is enough in the Bible that exceeds our minds that would cause us to fall on our knees and say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or, or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That's the response of a person who realizes God's ways are infinitely above my ways. So let's not flatten the globe. Let's not reduce God's three-dimensional ways to our two-dimensional way of thinking. And here's another mistake we need to avoid. You see, this verse, if you look at verse 29 and 30, you see the word predestined there, predestined. Some people get insatiably curious about this. See, there's, there's two dangers, I think, here, two ditches that we could fall into. On the one hand, we can get excessively curious, like children learning how to draw with a crayon for the first time, and they end up going right off the coloring page. So, so often we can take the logic of our own thinking and, and scribble right off the page of Scripture. But we have to be careful to stick just with God, what God has revealed. But there's another danger, and I think that is the danger of trying to censor the Bible, as if these things shouldn't be here. See, everything that God has revealed in the Bible is for our good. We should learn from Scripture even in the way we speak, and we should not presume to be wiser than God by trying to censor out part of what He has deliberately given us for our good. So how are we going to avoid falling into either of these ditches, like either over-curiosity or trying to censor the Bible? I think that what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 29-29 just puts it perfectly. The secret things, it says, belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Again, listen to the voice of God. This is the Word of God, all of which is given for our benefit. Let's go to the second question, what does this mean? What does this mean? And to do this, I want to take each of these five words that we find in verses 29 and 30. You see, Paul begins this chain that starts out with foreknew. Look at verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, at this point in the chain of verbs, he looks all the way to the very end at the outcome of this, and he, and he sees this to be conformed to the image of his Son, okay? So, it's almost like he starts with, with foreknew, 
and then predestined, and, and he can't wait. He just looks all the way past to the very end, and he says, to be conformed to the image of his Son, because that's the glory that's been being awaited. In fact, it's that glory that forms the bookends of this section where Paul said in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And now he's gotten to the glory, and he's looking at it at the end of the chain. So, so he's talking about foreknowledge, as whom he foreknew, he also predestined, calling justification and glorification. So these these five links of a chain, and they're all linked together by this repetition, intentionally communicating that no one's going to get left out of this process, that no one who believes in Jesus Christ is going to feel uncertain about whether this is going to be completed for them. So we'll begin with the word for new, for new. Initially, this might appear to mean to simply know ahead of time, Of course, God relates to time differently than we do. That's one of the reasons why I had Brother Jay Wright read this passage from Deuteronomy that speaks, uh, uh, rather Isaiah, that speaks of God's knowing the end from the beginning and choosing ahead Israel, His servant, to be His chosen people because God relates to time in a way that's completely different than you and I. So, yes, God knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything that's going to happen. But when this word is used for knowledge referring to God's activity, it is not referring to events, it's referring to people, designating people for a special relationship with Him. To illustrate this, I'll give you a verse from Jeremiah. It's chapter 1 and verse 5. The same use of the word foreknew is used here. This is where the Lord tells Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You hear that there before? I formed you in the womb. I knew you. It's a special knowledge, a relational knowledge that God has with Jeremiah even before he was born, even before he was conceived in the womb. It's a relational sort of knowledge. And this is why Paul contrasts this knowledge in chapter 11, verse 2, not with for ignorance, like the the opposite of foreknowledge is not for ignorance. The opposite of foreknowledge is rejection. He says God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. A similar use of this word in Psalm one says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, right? It's this intimate relational knowledge. And in a very sobering use of this word, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never, what? I never knew you. It's not that Jesus was not aware of their existence. It's that he had not entered into that pre-relationship with them, which is the meaning of foreknowledge. I think this distinction is important to make because a lot of people want to believe well-meaningly, that the meaning of this word is that God, back in eternity past, looked down the corridor of time and saw that some people were going to choose Him, and so chose them. But because that conflicts with the meaning of this word, it also conflicts with scriptural truth that the reason why God saved us is not because of anything that you and I have done. God saves us not because of some good He saw in us, but because of His own purposes, which ultimately defy our comprehension. That's the meaning of the word for new. What about this, predestined? It simply means God chose ahead of time for a particular purpose. In love, Paul writes in, first, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, He predestined us for adoption to Himself. Verse 11, Ephesians 1 says, He predestined us. And clearly the end for which He predestined us, you're, you're in Romans chapter 8, look at verse 29, is that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. We might ask, well, what, what motives did God have in predestining? What, what could possibly motivate His predestining of? It, it was according to the good pleasure of His will. We could search no further than that. Like when a, a sunbeam pierces some corner of your house and lightens it up, you don't trace the light 
to the corner, you trace the light back up to the sun, right? It's the same with God's purposes in saving us. And all the glory goes back to Him. It's according to His purpose, for His praise, for His glory. As Paul puts it, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, which ultimately trumpets to the praise of His glory. What about this word called? This is a call guaranteed to be effective. Why? Because those whom He called, He justified. Jesus said in the Gospels that that many are called, but few are chosen. That's a different sense of this word called that's being used here. The word that's being used here is more like the sense in which Jesus called Lazarus from the dead. You remember that story? How people were mourning and crying, and there's the tomb, and Jesus steps forth among the howling of the mourners, and He speaks into that dark tomb that's already reeking with the stench of Lazarus' decomposing body. And he calls, Lazarus, come forth, in the same voice that summoned constellations. And Lazarus isn't tossing and turning in his grave bed, wondering whether he's going to get up. Immediately we see that the man who had died comes forth. I mean, no grave clothes could muffle that call. That's the same sense of call that's being used here in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Those whom He called, He justified. This is the same way in which Paul is using the word called in Romans chapter 4 when he says that God calls into existence things that were not alive. It's what happened to us as believers when we trusted in Jesus Christ that that He brought us alive from the dead, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins. A summons that cannot be ignored. And fourth, justified. The ones who are called are also the ones who are justified. And with justification, Paul comes right into the present because that's where you and I are, right? As believers in Jesus Christ. This has been the theme of the book of Romans from the beginning to the end. The righteousness of God. How can God be righteous? How can God be a righteous God and yet call sinners righteous? He could do it because Jesus, the righteous one, died on behalf of the unrighteous ones so that God can be righteous and declare righteous those who are unrighteous. Did you get that? That's the whole theme of Romans. It's the people that don't deserve God's, ra- God's love can get God's love because Jesus died for them. And now we get right into the present in which Paul says, those whom he called, he also justified. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's you today. Justified, completely righteous in the sight of God. And if you're justified, you could have the confidence that your salvation is not dependent on you at all. It's all of God. You're part of this unbreakable chain. You can look at your salvation. You can look, in fact, even which is the point of this whole passage, at all the events in your life, and you don't have to worry that the single gust of doubt or your circumstances or your suffering is going to blow you over because you're rooted to God's eternal purposes. That's the whole point of this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Right? It doesn't depend on you. It's something bigger than you. It's something that encompasses more people than you. It's something that, that predates you. This can give you confidence in God's comprehensive plan that has as its outcome your good and God's glory. You see, that is why we can take such comfort and assurance in this, and that's why we can be certain that we will be glorified, which is referring to our being conformed to the image of Christ. 
We don't need to park here for long because this is what we talked about last week and what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But it's enough to say here that this is the climactic event for which every believer is longing. I mean, you right now know that you're not what you're supposed to be, right? You want to be like Jesus, you want to be completely conformed to His image, and yet you fail. And yet you do things you know you shouldn't. Yet you do things that grieve your Heavenly Father. And you're longing for it, and you're groaning for it, and every day you pray for it. And what you need to know is that every circumstance in your life God is sovereignly arranging to make you more like Christ so that one day when you see him, as John writes in his first epistle and third chapter, you shall be like him for you shall see him as he is and you'll be like him in every way. That's that's the climactic event for which every believer longs. And that's the purpose of God's predestining his children to be conformed to the image of Christ. And it's on the basis of this unbreakable chain of things that God has done for us that we can look back with confidence and say, all things are working together for good. This is the point of this passage, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why, this is why God puts it here. Look at the, again, I, wanna, I want you to put your eyes on it in verse 29. It's for. For is rooting and grounding the reason that we know. How, and here's the question you need to ask yourself is, the, the thing that just turns your stomach into knots right this morning, the thing that if you think about long enough, it will bring tears to your eyes, the thing that you're having anxiety about, is it part of God's plan or not? Is it really something that God had planned from eternity past for your good and His glory or not? Like you can have confidence and assurance in this because God tells you that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and one day will be glorified. That's the confidence that we could enjoy. It's not because I'm good, not because you're good, not because we've done enough, because God's good, and because Jesus has done enough when He died for us on the cross. What does this mean for us? Because we've just explored some pretty deep truths, right? <laughs> and this, these truths intersect with some really important and difficult questions. That are people really free to choose? Is God really fair? And some of these questions Paul goes on to discuss in chapter 9, but at this point, Paul is not concerned to answer these questions, and so neither am I. Isn't it nice to do verse-by-verse exposition? You get to just preach the Word and let the application flow from that. But here, here's where we are right now, brothers and sisters. Well, what does this mean for us? Try to answer every speculation that comes to our mind. Try to figure out all these deep theological problems that have been raging for centuries. You see, the response to this teaching that God has foreknown and predestined and called and justified and will glorify is not theological speculation. It's theological celebration, right? And what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us, right? That is the response to this teaching. There is, there is no one that could possibly stand in the way of God. Why? Because He's planned all this ahead of time. Nothing, nothing took Him by surprise. Nothing takes Him by surprise in your life. God's using everything, everything to make you more like Jesus. When you see a painter putting onto a canvas his masterpiece, he's not surprised by the colors that he uses. They were on his palette all along. God's not by surprised by the things that are going on in your life right now. Your loneliness, your financial difficulties, your health situation, 
frustration is at work. God's not surprised by that. It was on his palate all along so that because you're in Christ, he is painting a masterpiece for his glory and your good. That's what's going on in your life if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God is honored by your joyful confidence in his plan, not by your frazzled fretting. You know, a financial investor is going to be honored by his clients feeling comfortable with their estates being in his hands. God is honored by his children resting that their estates are in his hands. A father is honored that his children play contentedly in his home because they feel safe. So God, our Father, is honored when we're content because we're under his care. God is honored by your calm resting in his purposes about what's going on in your life right now. Now, what's going on right now, it may, they may not be restful things. They may be troubling things. But as long as you continually remind yourself that in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. No one can successfully oppose you because God is with you. That's the truth that we need to understand. And so, I want to show you three responses we should have when we consider this unbreakable chain of God's purposes for us. First of all, assurance. Assurance. I mean, what greater assurance can be found in our present circumstances than to realize that they were part of God's plan all along? Can you just for a moment think about the things that make you sigh and worry? Would you just confront those things in your own mind right now this morning and, and take them to the Lord and say, Lord, I believe that they are part of your plan all along so I can have assurance and not anxiety. Assurance. But secondly, adoration. Adoration. <laughs> At some point when we consider God's ways, we just have to stop, like as if the, at the edge of the Grand Canyon and say, oh, oh, oh the, the unsearchable ways of God. Where my comprehension ends, worship, worship begins. Adoration. That's what Paul did in the verses that I quoted earlier when he said, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. Who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things? And so He gets all the glory. And the question that we need to ask ourselves in this whole application of adoration is, is will we let God be God? Are you going to let God be who He is or do you insist on fitting Him into your little box? That may be a comfortable God, but it's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible will not be reduced to our little box. He explodes the categories of our thoughts. Why? So that we will worship Him and not ourselves. We must worship of God not of our own invention, but the God of revelation. And third, this leads us to action. Action. See, many people feel that the teaching that the Scripture gives here about foreknowledge and predestination, like puncture the gas tank of the engine that should fuel missions and evangelism. And actually, that's not the case. This is what Paul was talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, when he said, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also be saved. Like th This is actually what gives us the confidence to spread the gospel with passion. 
Because there is a God who is calling people to repent. And we have the conviction that there are people that God is calling out from every tribe and tongue and nation and people so that there can be this vast throng in heaven praising God. And it's with that conviction that we go forth. It's with that conviction that we share the gospel with people, knowing that if we, if we elevate Christ, He will draw all people to Himself. So hard is the human heart and so profound is the darkness of sin that our efforts to share the gospel would be meaningless unless we went forth with the conviction that Jesus Himself had said, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, them also I must bring. But if this requires action not only for us as believers, it requires action for those of you who are not believers. Because this God whose ways infinitely exceed ours has one word for you, and that is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, the gospel invitation is wide open to everybody. For God so loved the world, that's you, that, that whosoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have everlasting life. My friend, I'm praying for you and many people are praying for you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you don't know how short life can be. You don't know how uncertain life can be. Now is the day, today, this time, to take all the confidence that you put in yourself, all your efforts to make your life make sense, and, and, and all the hope that you invest in yourself and transfer it all to Jesus. That's the meaning of faith. You must do that to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He did for you what you could not do for yourself. And for those of us who are believers, we could take great assurance in these truths so that we respond just as we are taught to. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us?